Thank you very much. Welcome back. Um, let me plug a couple of books on the bookstool. Um, this one is, is my one, uh, my current one. I've got a new one coming out next year, uh, which is uh, on Jesus, called Understanding Jesus. So uh, keep eyes open for this. But this, uh, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, uh, reclaiming that term skeptic, which is particularly used in America as a description for saying, I'm an atheist. Only atheists can be skeptical about things. Well, I'm skeptical about atheism. Uh, so I wanted to reclaim that. And uh, this is really a response to the new atheist movement in particular, but also the various other um, popular writers on atheism, the kind of books that you'll find littering the bookshelves in uh, Waterstone's bookshop. And uh, this fits, of course, with the, the theme of the, the talk tonight. And I also wanted to bring to your attention, uh, I mentioned um, in the last talk William Lane Craig and his website, uh, reasonablefaith.org. His kind of signature text is a textbook called Reasonable Faith, and this is the sort of more popular market version, if you like, of his apologetics thinking. It's a very readable book. It's, it's not simplistic. It's uh, perhaps a little mind-expanding in places, but he's made it kind of as accessible as I think you can, uh, whilst still being accurate. There are various sort of cartoons and nice little diagrams that lead you through uh, the thinking, and it's interspersed with uh, his testimony as you go through, which is very interesting, and covers a lot of issues, including uh, the problem of evil issue that we're looking at uh, in this session. So you've got my paper for free, um, and uh, for a good sort of rounded introduction to various issues and apologetics, arguments for God, historical Jesus, problem of suffering, and, and so on, uh, then I would recommend Bill Craig's book, On Guard. Uh, the bit of music I was playing as some of you were coming in was uh, from the, the group Transatlantic, who are not a Christian uh, band per se, but the leader of the band, a guy called Neil Morse, is a Christian. And their recent album, The Whirlwind, was a very explicitly uh, Christian concept album, if you like, about the second coming of Christ. And in that um, album, they included this song written by Neil about the death of his father, which had happened recently. And um, it calls to mind various um, biblical uh, perspectives on actually going through and, and kind of coping with suffering uh, in your life. Uh, he talks about um, father died, sailed away into the night, and I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses, but I believe the man is going home. And I know that we're more than dust and ashes. And one day we'll know what we've known. But on the dark side, there are times of suffering. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses, but as the pages turn, one day we'll learn of everything. But now... We see through glass. And Paul talking about now, then we will see face to face, but now we see as in a glass, darkly, in a mirror, with a poor reflection of reality. And so on. And it goes on to talk about the hope of heaven. This world is not our home. You can live like a rolling stone, but you cannot escape with your life. We seek a city on fire with the heart of a child's desire. We will cross that bridge and enter into life real life so an experience of, of 
suffering and faith not taking away the pain or the suffering of that event, but putting it into a context where it can have meaning and one can have hope. That's why I've entitled this Living with Evil. and I'm going to sort of break it into kind of three sections again and look at a number of different types of the problem of evil. Some more sort of um, academic, if you like, sort of the purely Logos-focused, but some a little bit more uh, personal-focused as well. We'll look at the logical problem of evil. This is the the name of the the kind of classic problem of evil that uh, people think of when they use evil as an objection to the existence of God. We'll look at a more modern version of that problem called the evidential problem of evil. And then I'll look at what we could call the existential problem of evil, more to do with how do we face up to evil and suffering. The logical problem of evil is the idea that there is a contradiction between saying evil exists and saying God exists. You can say one or the other, but not both. That's the idea. These claims are meant to be incompatible one with another. You just can't fit them both together sensibly. Well, that's thus far just a bold assertion. And we need to be much more specific about what we mean by evil when we say evil exists and what we mean by God when we say God exists. If we're going to sensibly address, is there really a contradiction here, as some allege? See, American Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga says that many who confidently assert that this set of beliefs is contradictory make no attempt whatsoever to show that it is. They're content just to assert that there's a contradiction here. Michael Peterson says the alleged inconsistency is not obvious. It is neither explicit nor formal in nature. If I said to you, this chair exists and this chair does not exist, it would be obvious that I'm contradicting myself. If I said to you, I cannot speak a word of the English language, you all immediately know that that's not true. I'm contradicting myself. Those contradictions are obvious and explicit, if you like. But when I say God exists and evil exists, it's at least not as obvious that I've said something on a level with the chair exists and the chair does not exist. To make the purported implicit inconsistency explicit, says Peterson, some additional propositions, additional ideas must be kind of teased out here. So it's always good to try and address the strongest form of an objection that you can, to try try and do it the most justice that you can before arguing against it. Otherwise, you risk dismissing um, a straw man, something that's easily dismantleable, easily blown over, like the, the little pigs in the straw house when down the road there's one made of stone. So by God exists, we might say, well, truly the problem is that by God we mean a being that's maximally powerful 
He can do anything he wants. Uh, A God that's maximally knowledgeable. He knows about everything. A being who's holy and only good. His character is goodness. And a being who freely, freely created this world. And by saying that evil exists, surely isn't the problem the existence of objective evil, the kind of evil that we discover in reality, rather than something that we invent, or that depends upon what we choose or feel or decide, what our society happens to think or enact as a law that could be different from another society. You need, surely, to be claiming that the problem is that there are things that are objectively evil, that somehow the existence of these evil things in reality contradict the nature of a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and who freely created the world. This seems a bit more promising. Are these claims incompatible? Atheist Robin Le Poivre puts it about as well as I think you can when he argues like this. If God is all-knowing, he will be aware of suffering. You couldn't excuse God of, of evil and suffering by saying, well, he doesn't know about it. It's not his fault. If he's all-powerful, then he'll be able to prevent suffering. You can't excuse God by saying, well, you know, he can't do anything about it. And if he's perfectly good, he will desire to prevent suffering. But secondly, and clearly, he does not prevent this suffering, this evil. So, either, and this is a very crucial term here, either there is no such deity, or, if there is, he's not all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good, although he may be one or two of these. Isn't that fascinating? Notice that this is not an argument against the existence of a God. It's only an argument that claims to be an argument against a particular idea of what God is like. The new atheist Sam Harris, who very interestingly is about the only new atheist who explicitly puts forward the problem of evil, he says, if God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities, or he does not care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil. But notice, not non-existent. The logical problem of evil is not an argument for atheism. The belief that there is no kind of supernatural God behind the universe at all. Nor is it an argument against theism per se, against some kind of belief in a supernatural creator. It's only an argument against a very particular type of theism. So it's not an argument for a naturalistic, materialistic worldview. To support having a materialistic worldview, you'd have to look elsewhere than the problem of evil. But of course, the type of God that this argument is addressed against is the type of God that Christians believe in. 
start posing some interesting questions of this argument, as philosophers did in the last century in particular. So will an all-good God, kind of by definition, necessarily desire to prevent all evil? And, and will he desire to prevent it now rather than later? There seems to be another assumption here that God would desire to, to stop all evil now rather than at some later date for some reason. Well, atheist Richard Gale says, we often feel justified, just us human beings feel justified in bringing about or not preventing some evil so that a greater good could be realized or a greater evil could be avoided. And Lepodva says, suffering may be part of the divine design insofar as suffering is an essential consequence of some greater good. So the assumption in the argument that an all-good God must necessarily desire to stop all evil dead in its traps now doesn't actually seem to be true. The Oxford atheist J.L. Mackey admitted as much in his book The Miracle of Theism when he said the opposition between good and evil may be construed in such a way that a wholly good God would not, after all, eliminate evil as far as he could. And it may be argued that there are limits, he goes on to argue, limits to what even an omnipotent being, an all-powerful being, could do. For example, it would usually be said that God cannot do what's logically impossible. And this, we can agree, is no real departure from omnipotence. The fact that God can't create square circles doesn't mean that he is less than omnipotent. It just means that the concept of creating a square circle is a nonsensical concept. It's not quite that you can say, God can do anything, therefore God can do X and fill in X with anything you'd like, as if God could then do it. So there might be some limits that matter here. The problem of evil, says Mackey, does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. Or agnostic philosopher Paul Draper says, it's possible, it's possible, that there is some good reason, perhaps one too complicated for mere humans to understand, for God to permit tragedies. So tragedies don't conclusively disprove God. If it's possible that God has a good reason for letting it happen, well then it's happening doesn't contradict the claim that there's a God. Atheist William L. Rowe says some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of the theistic God. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Indeed, Granted incompatibilism, this is just a long word meaning free will, basically. Granted that people have free will, there's a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of God. Let me introduce to you another distinction between a defence and what's called a theodicy. A theodicy 
is an attempt to try and really explain how come God and evil can both coexist in the same world. To really explain what God's reason that justifies him in allowing evil to exist might be. To really explain why it's logically impossible for God to get rid of all evil now. Or something like this. A defense is much more humble in its uh, goals. A defense tries to give a logically possible account of reality in which God and evil coexist. It's not as if I'm, I could say, this is how I, why I actually think it is that God allows evil to exist. But if I can merely say, well, here's a possible reason. Maybe this is God's reason, maybe it's not, but it could be, couldn't it? If I can establish even that claim, that it's possible that this is God's reason, then that would disprove the logical argument from evil that says there is no possible way in which God and evil can fit together. So I don't have to claim to know what God's reasons are, just so long as I can give you some plausible ideas about what they could be. And that's a defense. And Alvin Plantinga is perhaps the world's leading philosopher of religion. And he's a Christian. And one of the areas of work that he was particularly famous for working on is this whole free will defense against the problem of evil. And he says, a world containing creatures who are significantly free, creatures like us, is more valuable than a world containing no significantly free creatures. To create creatures capable of moral good, of, of being praiseworthy for what they choose to do morally, God must create creatures capable of moral evil, capable of not choosing to do the right thing. And he can't give these creatures this freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from ever performing evil. He says it's logically impossible to have creatures who are free to choose between good and evil and for God to ensure that they never do evil because they've got the freedom to do evil. God's given them that freedom. And he can't do that at the same time as not giving them freedom. It surely is a contradiction to say God gave people freedom and God didn't give people freedom. That is much more obviously self-contradictory than the claims God exists and evil exists. Oh. And remember, Planting is not even claiming that this is true. He's only claiming that maybe this could be true. It's possible that this is the case. But you might say, well, maybe that would cover the, the evil that one person does to another. But what about all that, that suffering, that horrible suffering brought about by natural calamities and so on? Well, he adds the admittedly implausible, but still logically possible idea that all natural evil, as it's called, all suffering caused by the natural world, is caused by demons misusing their free will. Don't think that is true. Maybe some is, but I don't think it's true that all is. 
But he's not claiming that it's true, he's just claiming that it's possible. And those two claims together would cover all the evil that there is in reality and prove that it's logically possible, at least, that God and evil coexist in the same world. So as Michael Bergman says, there is a nearly unanimous agreement among both theistic and non-theistic philosophers of religion today that this logical version of the argument from evil doesn't work. There is no formal logical contradiction involved in saying God exists and evil exists. Let us pause there for some questions because that is my address to the logical problem of evil. Grand, some good questions coming from you guys today. And because of this failure of the, the so-called logical problem of evil, philosophy kind of moved on. And the atheists kind of retreated to uh, a smaller claim. The typical atheistic claim today is not that evil conclusively disproves or contradicts the idea that there's a God. Rather, it's that evil counts against the rationality of belief in God, at least somewhat. That's a much kind of smaller, less expansive claim to defend. You might see a typical example of this kind of argument going something like this, if you follow these steps through. Number one, I don't see a good reason why God would do or allow some particular example of evil or the amount of evil that there is in the world or these types of evil or whatever. I don't see a good reason why God would do or allow that. Secondly, if I can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing that, then there probably isn't one. Therefore, number three, there probably is no good reason why God would do or allow X. But fourth, unless there is a good reason, a good reason why God would do or allow X, God doesn't exist. Because for his existence to be compatible with it, he'd, he'd have to have a good reason that justified it. So therefore, God probably doesn't exist. Okay? So you see, we've got a smaller claim at the end. It's not certainly God doesn't exist. It's now, well, probably God doesn't exist. And it's crucially based on premise two here. If I can't see a good reason for God allowing X, then there probably isn't one. Some philosophers have jokingly called this the no see principle. <laughs> Gregory Gansel puts it like this. He's a picture of a lamppost. You already know the story about the policeman coming across the drunk at night. He's patting the floor on hands and knees around this lamppost. And the policeman says, so, what are you doing? And the, and the guy says, I, uh, I've dropped my keys somewhere. Uh, I'm looking for my keys. And the policeman says, uh, are, are you sure you dropped them around here? And the guy says, uh, no, 
But this is the only place I can see. Gansel says the inference, the move from the claim that it seems as though there's no sufficient reason to be found for God allowing suffering to the conclusion that it's probably the case that there is no sufficient reason is not a strong inference. Alvin Plantanger talks about the, um, the book of Job. This is one of William uh, Blake's illustrations from the book of Job. Job is very up-to-date in terms of the contemporary debate about the problem of evil. It's fascinating. It says, says, when God replies to Job at the end of Job, he doesn't tell him what his reason is for permitting his sufferings. At the end of the book, Job is no clearer than at the beginning as to why he is suffering. Perhaps Job couldn't so much as grasp or comprehend it. Instead, God attacks the implicit inference from Job's not being able to see what God's reason is to the notion that there probably is none. And he does this by pointing out how vast is the gulf between Job's knowledge and God's knowledge. And there's a wonderful bit of poetry about the natural world where God just peppers Job with question after question. You know, were you there when the foundations of the earth were laid? Do you know how this happens? Do you know how that happens? Do you understand even the world that you can observe around you? And Job has to admit that he doesn't. Well, how, much, how can he expect to have an understanding of the world of the supernatural that he can't see around him apart from revelation? God doesn't reveal what his reasons are. The reader of the book of Job is kind of let in behind the scenes. There's sort of indication from the, the author that you know, maybe there are reasons that we, don't, we can't know about as humans. And it really speaks to this evidential problem of evil. You can illustrate it like this. You have a, a novice playing a grandmaster at chess. And you're looking on at the match. And you know enough about the rules to kind of follow the game a bit. And the Grand Master moves a pawn and the novice takes it with his bishop. And you think to yourself, gosh, that Grand Master, he just made a really rubbish move, didn't he? He lost a piece. I can't see any good reason why, why he would have done that. He probably doesn't have a good reason. He's probably no, no good at chess, this guy. Does the fact that you can't see a good reason why the Grand Master's lost his pawn mean that he doesn't have a good reason? That he's not setting some trap 16 moves ahead? Of course not. Well, now, if the, if the, the difference in mental ability between us ordinary chess players and a Grand Master is by any means analogous to the intellectual difference between us ordinary folk and the creator of the universe. Maybe the intellectual difference there is a bit bigger. Then how can we make a justified inference from I can't see why he's done that to oh he's got no reason, he's rubbish at his job. <laughs> what about premise four as well? The idea, unless there's a good reason why God would, would do or allow some suffering, some evil, God doesn't exist. I, the idea here is that 
if God exists, no evil, no suffering could be gratuitous. That is, every example of evil or suffering must be connected to some justifying reason that means, well, okay, it's okay for God to have allowed that. Permissible. Well, there's a philosopher called Peter Van in Vegan who mounts an interesting argument. I don't know if I'm fully convinced by this or not, but I think it's very interesting to think through. What he calls the vagueness argument for moral gratuity. And he basically argues that in any world that God created, there would have to be the possibility of evil that wasn't connected to some justifying good. That there's a vagueness in this area that even omnipotence can't get around. And he argues it by analogy like this. He says, a sentence, a prison sentence of 10 years, I sentence you to 10 years, is no more effective at deterring and punishing crime than a sentence of 9 years, 364 days. Now, how many people are not going to commit the crime because of that extra day on the, on the sentence attached to it? Probably no one. Now, if no gratuitous evil is ever permissible, then a just punisher would, would not sentence the criminal to 10 years. Because after all, that extra day is gratuitous. It doesn't really make any difference. Surely it's unjust to give people punishments that, that don't make a difference. But this argument can be reiterated ad infinitum until we conclude that no jail term is just. What about, you know, nine years, 363 days? Is that extra day, really? And so on. But surely some jail term or other is just. The solution to this paradox is to recognise that effective deterrence, as a notion, is vague. A perfect moral judge must simply draw a line of demarcation somewhere. And for any place he draws that line, it will be true that his drawing it at a slightly different place would have been just as effective. So in Vegan says there is no precise number or, or quality or quantity of evil that must occur in order to achieve certain compensating goods like free will, genuine love, etc., whatever you want to mention, or to prevent equally bad or worse consequences from happening. You know, it's bad that I cause you pain in sawing your leg off, but probably a good thing if you've got gangrene and I save your life by doing it. So he says, God cannot remove all evil from the world now, for that would frustrate his plan for reuniting human beings with himself long term. And if he prevents only some evils now, how shall he decide which ones to prevent? Where shall he draw the line in permitting evil to go on? Wherever he draws the line, it will be an arbitrary line. Which contradicts, undermines the assumption in the evidential argument that for God to be just, every piece of evil must be intrinsically connected to some justificating reason. Even God, says in Vegan, must draw, draw an arbitrary line when deciding 
what number and quantity of evil to allow. Yeah, it's quite an interesting argument. So we've got pretty good reasons, I think, for being doubtful about two of the premises of the evidential argument. But theists have some additional responses that they could make to the whole field. This would sort of apply to both. So maybe I'll actually pause there just for some questions on the evidential um, argument from evil, if there are any questions on those issues. The agnostic Graham Oppie said, if theists can reasonably suppose that they've got lots of evidence, lots of evidence which supports the claim that God exists, then they may reasonably believe that there's a solution to the problem of evil, even if they don't know what the solution is. Atheist Michael Tooley, in a recent debate with Alvin Plantinger, he says the evidential argument from evil, the evidential argument, is highly controversial. Even if it can be shown that evils that are found in the world render the existence of God unlikely, even if it can be shown, it might still be the case that the existence of God is not unlikely, all things considered. For perhaps the argument from evil can be overcome by appealing either to positive arguments in support of the existence of God, or to the idea that belief in the existence of God is properly basic, something you can just know by experience. So saying, even if this evidential argument from evil that says the reality of evil counts against God, even if that were a solid argument insofar as it goes, that might not go very far when you take into account all of your knowledge and experience. You can have one piece of evidence in court pointing to the guilt of the man in the dock. And you can, as the jury, say, let him go free. Because all of the other evidence points to his innocence. If we have this image of a sort of balance pan and we're weighing up how likely we think that it is that there really is a God. And we kind of put the problem of evil in one balance pan as the main reason. And it is the main reason that people have ever thought of to, to, to think that there probably isn't a God or that there can't be a God. And we put in the other balance pan all the reasons that we might think of pro thinking that there's a God of a certain character. I mean, this is just a small selection. Um, so in terms of the sheer numbers, it's a rather uneven contest. You need to, of course, weigh the, the quality of those arguments, but there's a lot to be considered on the other balance pan. You can't just look at and make your decision on the basis of the problem of evil, even if you thought that it had some weight to that argument. You know, maybe it has one kind of kilogram of oomph against, but maybe all the arguments for have you know three tons for or whatever. So also, coming back to an issue we mentioned at the beginning, when the atheist states that evil exists in advancing the problem of evil, you know, ask them, you know, do you mean a subjective value like disliking spinach? I used to like spinach when I was young. Can't stand the stuff now. My taste buds must have changed, you know. Um, 
my young me likes it, my old me dislikes it. There's clearly a difference between us. I'm not doing anything wrong by disliking spinach. You know. um, or is it an objective difference? One that's really out there in reality to be discovered. And if they mean subjective, if they don't think that there is any such thing as an objective evil or good by which you can judge it, then the argument has no traction in the first place. And if they do mean objective value, then they're halfway to the moral argument for the existence of God. J.L. Mackey, atheist, remember, said this, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. Now what did he do with that as an atheist? He said, well, I better be a moral subjectivist then. I better say that morals are just things that we invent. He published a whole book called Morality, Inventing Right and Wrong. So, sure, you know, he escapes that whole problem. But which is really the bigger problem? You know, having to think that there's a good God or having to think that the Holocaust was not wrong. It's just something that our society disagreed with. So, suffering and misfortune, says Plantinga, may constitute a problem for the theist. But the problem is not that his beliefs are logically or probabilistically incompatible. The theist may find a religious problem of evil in the presence of his own suffering or that of someone near to him. He may find it difficult to maintain what he takes to be a proper attitude towards God. Or even to give up belief in God altogether. But this is a problem of a different dimension. Such a problem calls not for philosophical engagement, but for pastoral care. Now, I'm an expert in the philosophical engagement, not in the pastoral care aspect of this, but you have to be very aware when you're addressing the subject that it is not just a kind of logical argumentation issue, that it is very personal, as we were, were saying, and that it's a matter that sometimes calls for a jolly good logical argument and a bit of, you know, a syllogistic logic and so on, but sometimes calls for an arm around the shoulder and a cup of tea and, and, and a free meal uh, and an offer to do the gardening or, or whatever. Pathos and ethos. Exactly. Pathos and ethos come in here as well. Thank you, sir. I think also, and a more kind of, let's go a little bit French for a moment, a little bit existential like Jean-Paul Sartre and Camus and the existentialists of the 60s, the sort of philosophy that concentrates on the nature of being human and living in the world and so on. I think a lot of this issue, on the intellectual side at least, on the Logos side, boils down to this question. Is the pain worth the gain? Is the pain worth the gain? Saying no, the pain is not worth the gain, means saying that if humanity were threatened with extinction and it was within our power to save it from extinction, we ought not to do so. If you've seen Luc Besson's film, The Fifth 
element. It's a very interesting dramatization of this uh, theory. Uh, if you haven't, the basic plot is there's this uh, evil force threatening galactic civilization, and Bruce Willis is a uh, cab driver, and Mila Jovich plays um, a genetically constructed alien being that's a crucial component of the only weapon that can save humanity. She is the fifth element, and this weapon has the, the four, you know, earth, wind, fire, water. She is the fifth element. And only by kind of plugging her into the heart of this machine that they uncover in a big pyramid in the desert can they defeat the evil coming across them, um, aided by Gary Oldman in um, lots of costumes by Jean-Paul Gaultier. Fantastic uh, <laughs> film. And the fifth element is... Uh, naive about people. She's a fantastic fighting machine and a crucial element to defeating evil, but she doesn't really know much about people. And throughout the film, she's looking through the encyclopedia at, at odd moments. And she's sort of, oh, I've got up to the letter E. And just before the crucial end of the film, when they need her to save humanity, she gets to the letter W. And she reads and looks at the footage under the entry for war. And tears stream down her face. And they pull her into the pyramid and they've worked out how to get the machine going. And she's just kind of limp and kind of lifeless. And Bruce Willis, in a vest, of course, <laughs> is holding her. Kind of saying, come on, you've got, to, you've got to help us save humanity, you've got to save humanity. And she says, why? Why should I? Look at the horrible things you do to each other. Playing in the background images of the atomic bombs going off and the Holocaust and things. Why should I? And Bruce Willis cradles her and she says, Yes, yes, we, we, do, we do horrible, terrible things to each other, that's true. But there's also wonderful things. There's, 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 there's great things worth saving. And it's clear by this stage, of course, that you know, he's fallen in love with her. And one of the other characters sort of gives him a nudge and says, you know, Tell her, tell her. And he says, you know, why, should, why should he save you? Because, he says, because I love you. And they kiss. And the machine works, it springs into life, and the evil is defeated. <laughs> and the whole audience in the cinema groan and say, oh dear, how disappointing. <laughs> Humanity was saved. You know, it would have been a good thing if, we, if they didn't get saved. Because after all, the, the pain of human existence and all that suffering and evil that we do to each other is just not worth it. No, of course not. The whole audience go, oh, that, I really enjoyed that. That was really good. I'm going to go and tell my friends to go and see it. You know, uh, rent it. Uh, fifth element. So we do seem to have this kind of intuitive thing that they're playing on there. That, yes, our freedom and so on does allow terrible, horrible, horrific things. But is the pain worth the gain? Is love and it's particularly not just love between humans that it makes possible, but between humans and our creator, who is love and has a long-term plan for the redemption of the universe. Is the pain worth the gain? Do we really say it would be better if humanity had never come to pass? To say to oneself and to one's fellow human beings, our life, your life is not worth living. That's what you're saying if you say, no, the pain is not worth the gain. It is to embrace a nihilistic outlook on life. So the belief 
that the existence of humans is worthwhile reinforces the point, I think, that it's irrational to, to discount God on the basis that we don't have a complete answer to the question of why life is worthwhile despite all these things. Recognising the value of human life means making the unselfish decision that we'd rather, we'd rather the universe contain the value we embody, even if it means accepting but no, not, not acquiescing in suffering. And not. And indeed, maybe, maybe this selflessness is itself one of the values permitted by our existence that justifies our existence. Atheist Paul Kurtz from America, secular humanist. Did you like my um, Star Wars scroll there? Did you notice that, sci-fi fans? <laughs> it says, if secular humanists are to effectively provide alternatives to traditional theistic religions, he's writing an op-ed in a magazine for secular humanists here. He's addressing the home crowd. He says, we need to confront directly the root existential questions to help people, to help people withstand the blows of outrageous fortune, illness, grief, suffering, conflict, failure, and death. He's saying we haven't really grappled with this sufficiently as secular humanists. Well, but how do you do that when this is your worldview? This is Peter Atkins, British atheist and chemist. He says, we are children of chaos, and the deep structure of change is decay. At root, there is only corruption, and the unstemmable tide of chaos. Gone is purpose. All that is left is direction. This is the bleakness we have to accept as we peer deeply and dispassionately into the heart of the universe. And let's try and make this a foundation for helping people to deal with the outrageous flows of grief. And it seems a pretty, pretty steep task to me.